Are you ready to take your career to the next level? This is ISE's Michael Hughes. Earning a master's in engineering management from the University of Louisville can strengthen your leadership skills and open new career opportunities in just 10 courses. In UofL's fully online program, you take just one course at a time whenever it's most convenient, making it easy to balance life and education. All you need is a bachelor's in a STEM field. Six Sigma Black Belt certification available and no GRE required. Engineer the future. Get signed up today at louisville.edu slash online. This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Welcome to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm Aaron Grimmer, an occupational therapist with Advocate Aurora Healthcare in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I specialize in hand and upper extremity rehabilitation, as well as office and industrial ergonomics, and I am a co-chair of the AEC webinar committee. Today, we'll be talking to the director of the Ergonomics Center at Texas A&M University, Dr. Mark Benden, about the impact of workplace displacement for office workers environmental factors of different office settings, and emerging technologies in virtual office ergonomics. Before we begin, however, I want to remind you, uh, everyone, that there's still time to save on registration for the 25th Annual Applied Ergonomics Conference, March 21st through the 24th at the Rosen Center Hotel in Orlando, Florida. Sign up by March 13th to get $200 in savings. Register now at www.iise.com. Dot org backslash AEC backslash register. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Could you give us just a little more background about yourself and uh, your profession and maybe we'll start talking about some of the research and things that you've been working on with your colleagues? You bet. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's an exciting chance to get to chat a little bit about some of our research. We so often get kind of hung up on details and, you know, statistical p-values and things, and we sort of forget, like, hey, part of our mission as a land-grant school is to take this information out to the public and get it in the hands of, you know, employers and employees and and let them, you know, put it to to, to task to help people. So thank you for allowing me to do this. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, background, you know, I, I guess uh, everybody, you know, in the academic world starts with their degrees and all that kind of stuff. So I, I won't bore you with that because, you know, I'm a professor, so, you know, I have a few. But uh, my background was in biomedical engineering and I worked in industry for about 16 years before becoming an academic. And the, the opportunity, I think, to transition from first uh, doing consulting work in ergonomics and then later product design and development in ergonomics, working in a plant as a plant ergonomist and then later a corporate ergonomist and, and you know, having multiple plants. Uh, and then, like I say, transitioning into uh, something where I could do R&D. It's really been a, a full circle experience for me as an ergonomist and, and sort of seeing those different angles and, and you know, serving companies, being in a company, trying to provide research now to companies and, and help build up students to go out and work for those companies. It's a lot of fun and, and seeing those different aspects, but the process sort of, of going through all of that is like so many ergonomists, you know, you, you find yourself involved in so many different things 
you get pulled in so many different directions. And so we, we wear a lot of hats and uh, I currently get to wear quite a few hats on campus. So normal, normal faculty things like teaching ergonomics courses to grad students and teaching undergrads. And of course, you know, working in the research laboratories and working in the field, doing research, uh, writing papers and so forth. But then I'm also an administrator. So I've got responsibilities as a department head and a director of the ergonomics center. It really, uh, it really gives me the, the opportunity to sort of jump out of bed, excited to go to work every day because there's just, there's never a boring, dull time. There's never, there's never downtime. Um, there's just, there's so much to do and there's so many things and you have the academic freedom uh, to sort of chase some things that are interesting to you. And, you know, when I worked at, for a company, for the most part, I could present things I was interested in, but, that didn't necessarily mean the company yeah. was going to be interested in those things. But now as an academic, I can, I can still pursue those things. So it's a lot of fun. What uh, would you say your distribution of time is spent between the classroom uh, teaching and uh, the administration and then like the research? Yeah. The way it works numerically is that administration is supposed to be half of my job, uh, about 50%. And then the teaching is supposed to be about uh, a third of my job. And then the research is supposed to be about two thirds of my job. So if you're good with math, you start <laughs> to kind of figure out those don't add up to hundred percent. And that's just fine with me. Uh, I'm, I'm good with that. I, I love that. Like I say, I would, I would hate to uh, be working in a position where I lack things to do or was bored. So it's a lot sure. of fun. Nice yeah. to have variety. Nice to, Absolutely. Do different things and not be stuck in one role. That's right. I can relate to that. Um, so I, jumping right into things, um, there's been, you know, yourself and your colleagues at Texas A&M have done a lot of research about displaced workers. And obviously right now, uh, there's a lot of displaced office workers moving from formal office settings to the home setting, which is, you know, obviously going to come with a lot of challenges and probably a lot of benefits. but um, you know, uh, kind of research have you guys done? You mentioned earlier, uh, but when we talked before the, the podcast started about uh, some emerging research about how COVID has affected um, uh, displaced workers. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because we started back at about 2017, getting very interested in the idea of a remote worker. And if you recall back in those days, it was it was really a small percentage. We're talking single digit percentages of the workforce that were truly remote workers. We were experiencing some hybrid workers. There were some of those out there that wasn't quite the buzzword that it is today. But uh, we definitely had some folks, you know, we had people doing job sharing and all that kind of stuff. But it really kind of came down to some specialized folks in some specialized areas, some some forward leaning companies who are recognizing that the ability to have workers work remote or work from a place that they, you know, really were comfortable calling home. Um, that flexibility was a way to, you know, recruit and retain and promote and advance workers that they would lose if they got real rigid and said, you know, you have to be here in this particular office. So we saw this kind of coming. We certainly, and I don't think anybody did, saw the unbelievable transition that occurred as a result of COVID. Yeah, right. we were thinking that by now, maybe, you know, in 2020, 2025, you know, there might be 10 or 15% of the workforce dabbling in something remote-ish. 
And of course, as you know, today, it's about a quarter of the total workforce that are at least dabbling, you know, hybrid or true remote. And during the pandemic, it was approaching 50 percent because obviously not everybody uh, can be a remote worker. There's a lot of jobs. uh, Let's say you work in a hospital. You got to go to the hospital. Right. I mean, that's going to that's going to be a thing. Right. If you're a patient care, you got to You got to go where the patients are. So, I mean, there's jobs out there that that's not going to fit. So anyway. But yeah, we started seeing those trends and we started seeing the opportunities. And so we we got involved with a few of our industry partners. We have about 90 uh, industry partners here at the Ergonomic Center. And um, many of those partners are what I would consider extremely active. You know, they are on a weekly, monthly basis, you know, calling and interacting and looking for, of course, our next graduates. Uh, they need students to come work for them. They're, they're looking for research on what's happening at their company, ways to help them. And so we had one of those industry partners, uh, large Fortune 500 partner approach us and say, hey, we we like what you're doing on this remote topic. You know, can you kind of track some of our people? We started looking very small numbers, you know, a handful of folks. And then we said, you know what, let's just get some data on people in the office because most of their people were in the office. So we started tracking about a thousand workers in the office. And we had no idea that Hurricane Harvey was going to hit nine months later. So nine months later, Hurricane Harvey hits and all of those workers, their offices uh, got flooded out. So they got displaced. They became overnight. I started to sound familiar like COVID. uh, They became remote workers. And that was a really interesting, unique, uh, naturalistic experiment for us to all of a sudden be continuing to collect data from these folks when they went remote. And so many of them were remote for uh, upwards of six months before their offices were finished and they were back into the office. And we continued to track, we tracked them for a total of two years. And one of the fascinating things about this data that we're using to track is that this software looks at all of your computer activity, looks at your keystrokes, looks at your mouse movement, looks at how many pixels across the screen you travel and, you know, looks at your typing speed and your errors and your, uh, you know, backspaces and corrections. And I mean, just over a hundred data points every second of every day that you're working on your computer. And that data has turned out to be extremely rich for us. And we are mining that data. I would say that uh, particularly at this point in my career, um, you know, more than 30 years in, there's probably enough data from a couple of those types of studies where we've got a thousand up to 5,000 workers that I could probably finish the rest of my career just analyzing and grinding and chewing on that data. There's so much there. It's so rich. It's a rare opportunity in research, isn't it? It really is. And, and, you know, it's funny how that goes, you know, from an academic standpoint, you would you would receive criticism, of course, from, uh, you know, an academic reviewer, a peer reviewer saying, well, you didn't really plan that study that way. You know, the Hurricane Harvey hit. You didn't know Hurricane Harvey was coming. (laughs) They'd be correct. Uh, We did not know that. Uh, We did not plan for that. It, It happened. So, you know, these these types of naturalistic experiments are interesting. And I think from an ergonomic perspective, too, one of the, the fun parts about this study is it's a little different because you're not collecting a sample of these workers, you know, performance data. You're, you're collecting all of it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going out on a Tuesday, right, and saying, hey, Aaron, answer these four questions for me and I'll mark them on my clipboard. Or, hey, Aaron, can I put this meter on your keyboard today? And come back tomorrow and, and look at what it says, you know, read the read the output. 
I, I'm leaving the meter running all day, every day, right? Literally 24 yeah. seven. So the, the idea has changed from when I came into the industry, certainly. And the way we can, we can collect data now, you know, we can, we don't have to sample, we choose to, and sometimes that's the best practice or the most economic one. But with a lot of the digitization of information, we don't have to settle to just take a you know a randomized sample on a Tuesday. We we can we can collect all the data. Right. In fact, in a lot of cases, we collect all the data from all the people in our target population. And that has been such a profound change that even our statisticians are really struggling because it's 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 sort of like when you're when your whole career is based on telling people how to collect a small amount of data and pass it off as the, the full story. Cause that's what we do, right? We, we ask a thousand Americans, how would you vote in the election? And then we say, oh, well then this person's gonna win, right? Yes. 800 said they like this person. So we didn't ask the whole population, right? We, we settled for that. So if you're a statistician, you're the person who has to justify to the public that a thousand people's enough. Right. Well, we used to always do that. That was always our, you know, that was always our first question, right? When we started an experiment was how, how many do we have to ask or collect right. or sample? How many days or hours or weeks? So we've changed that a little bit to the point now where it's like, well, we don't, we don't need to settle for a sample. We'll just get all the data all the time, continuing right. going forward, right? Live, moving forward. And boy, that's a, that's rocking some people's world in academia. There, there's some folks really struggling with this and, sort of what to do with it, right? I mean, how do you, how do you do the analysis, right? Because all the analysis is all based on these other kinds of assumptions. So it's, it's good times, right? It's exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. And I would almost think that amount of data could almost be overwhelming to, you know, pick through, um, but probably better to have too much than too little. And uh, I would say the benefit is of not knowing this was going to happen and already have been collecting that data is that in some regards, it's unbiased then. It wasn't structure that data collection around an idea, a hypothesis. It just happened to be. So I would see it as positive in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a positive. And I think that the field in general is moving that direction. I think you're going to experience this in uh, medicine, for instance. So a really, really quick, simple example from a personal standpoint. You know, we we reached a point in our lives where it was pretty obvious that, uh, you know, someone from a health perspective needed to go see a physician. So they go see the physician and she says, Hey, listen, uh, we just took your blood pressure here in the office and it's high. And so that one reading, I think about that, that one blood pressure reading was taken in, you know, a period of, a, you know, say over a year, there is a chance that that one moment in time, for whatever reason, diet or, you know, just, you know, running into the office or being nervous about the doctor or whatever, that your blood pressure reading was really higher than it normally runs. So as a physician, if I treat you based on that one reading, I've done exactly what I was talking about with those samples, right? I've said this one reading in the office is representative of your normal blood pressure. I've decided that that's the case. And we know enough now, particularly around things like blood pressure, that, that that's not really the greatest uh, proxy for that one metric. So how much more powerful would it be if you came into your doctor's office and you turned over your chip, which might be installed in your wrist or your brain or who knows in the future, but you said, hey, here's my data, not my my one single moment reading right now, but here's my blood pressure every second of every day for the last two years. And the physician could take a look at that. She could say, you know, 
I don't think you need medication. I think you're fine. I think you maybe need, you know, X, Y, and Z in your diet or exercise or whatever, but I'm, I'm not going to put you on medication. That's yeah. a game changer, right? That's a big difference in potentially that patient's outcome, but also just, you know, for the efficacy of the treatment as well. So there's a lot of things in our field that are that are trending this direction. And I'm, I'm excited that the sort of the next generation coming out of the schools now are beginning to get a taste of this while they're in college. Or they're beginning to get us, you know, okay, this is, we don't have to do this the way that our old professors did it when they came in the field 30 years ago. Uh, we can change the game. You know, we can turn this upside down. We can really take a look at what's happening and, and then make some quality decisions based on that full data set. So it, it is very exciting. That's interesting. Uh, one thing I noticed about the Hurricane Harvey study uh, it, it did mention that additional research uh, had shown that there was a lack of proper home office equipment because of tra- that transition. I yeah. would imagine there's going to be a big shift in the type of home office equipment that's available and maybe of the affordability of the equipment. Uh, can you speak about maybe some things that you're familiar yeah. with? Yeah, Here, Here's some of the things that we ran into during that time. We saw workers doing exactly what they did during COVID, of course, is working from uh, less than adequate, less than adjustable, not what you and I certainly would consider ergonomic uh, office equipment, furniture, you know, uh, seating, desking, kitchen uh, tables. Monitors, keyboard. <laughs> they, they were exactly. I mean, we had people sitting on buckets, plastic buckets in their closet, particularly during the COVID one, because they were hiding from their kids who were also home from school, um, you know, with a little light on above them, some of them using a flashlight or a phone light or something to take notes during a call. So I've seen some really, of that as well. Did you? Okay. So we, we yeah. saw quite the extreme. And, and I think those experiences, you know, particularly when it comes to things like children home during the summers or, you know, during COVID, of course, we had them home even during the fall and spring semesters. But, uh, you know, how does that impact, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a single mom and I live in an apartment and I've got a couple of kids and a dog and you're calling me on a Zoom or asking me to do a podcast, the chances of me being able to conduct that podcast with a quiet environment, focus, nothing going on around me, nobody's, you know, jumping through hoops or going crazy or spilling stuff. It's just, it's pretty slim. And so, you know, from a standpoint of these corporations with equipment, they, they've realized like, okay, if we're going to do this, if this is going to be your primary office workplace is the home, we need to provide some equipment. We need to either do a stipend or we need to provide some sort of guidance or some recommended uh, brands and makes and models. And so we're, we're seeing that trend change quite a bit. We're seeing that, that shift. What I love about this too, especially as an inventor is I love that it's creating innovation because companies are realizing, yes, we already know this great stuff that we can put into a traditional corporate office setting. You know, the electric high adjustable desk and the thousand dollar ergonomic chair with all the bells. We know about that stuff, but people, a lot of people either don't have room or they just don't want that look in their home, right? They have an aesthetic taste in their home. that's not the same as a more sterile institutional corporate environment. And so for different reasons, people want different things. They still need something like, let's say, adjustability, right? I think most ergonomists would say, uh, do you need adjustability in equipment and furniture? Yes. Okay, that's an easy one. Um, Does it all have to look like this, right? This kind of black and white thing? No, no, it could could be softer. It could have colors. It could be fabric instead of 
hard plastic, right? So there's there's a lot of different ways to go, and you're seeing what I would consider innovation around uh, multiple use equipment. So you mentioned the dining room table, kitchen table, dining room table. We're seeing inventors come out with some really cool, um, complete ergonomic workstation desk setups that are hidden underneath on the underside of your dining room table. That's so pretty cool. Friends and family come over for dinner. They walk in, they, all they see is a dining room table. But when you hit a button, your monitor comes up out of it and your keyboard comes up out of it and you can sit or stand at that dining room table slash workstation. It looks pretty James Bondish, right? I mean, it's kind of right, hard. The Jetsons. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, I, I think that's going to be one of those places where maybe before those products and ideas were out there, they were on the drawing board, but no one thought they could possibly sell enough of those to, with so few people needing that. And all of a sudden now you're realizing, oh, wow, there's a lot of people that you know, could potentially use that. And a lot of people are working in some capacity uh, from home and they may really gravitate towards some of these new products. So that's exciting too. And it's changing the whole landscape of, of equipment and office. And I would say probably more than anything out of all of that group, uh, real estate, particularly corporate, you know, contract real estate for companies. Uh, that is, that is really taken a, wow, radical, a hit, radical change. It, it, well, and it's, again, I think it's a hit, but it's also an opportunity, right? Every time you have something like that, right? You have both. And so you have companies who are realizing, wow, we need more shared space. We need space downtown where people can come in and work at together, but not necessarily be there all week. Maybe come in and be downtown and spend an afternoon with their colleagues in some shared spaces that are more comfortable. In fact, some of those spaces will probably end up being very flexible and they'll probably look a lot more like some of the things in our homes. Uh, and then they can go back to their home office and work diligently, quieter, you know, alone, whatever. So yeah, it's a it's a fun time and remote through COVID, but already it already started is driving a lot of those changes. I was looking at the Hurricane Harvey uh, worker displacement study. Uh, what was kind of the, the takeaway from that study about uh, workers having to leave the office setting and, and go to home? I think the big takeaway for us was that, you know, 30 days out, the workers who had been forced to go work from home, they really got back to the same level of productivity, computer usage, output, uh, same error rate, same words typed that they were at before they were displaced. And so they continued, of course, for another four or five months to work from home like that and work at the same productivity level they were at before. And, and if I'm a corporation uh, listening into this podcast, I'm thinking, so 30 days, everybody's pretty much back up to where they were at when they were in the office. That, that's, I hope that's at least encouraging to those companies that, you know, this is, this is doable. This is workable. It, it can, it could be okay, right? It's not, uh, they're not, they're not at home goofing off. They're at home working. They're working just like they were before. Have you ever been part of an engineering project or team and wished you were calling the shots? This is IISC's Michael Hughes. The online master's in engineering management at the University of Louisville can expand your career opportunities and prepare you to take leadership roles in just 10 courses. Classes cover topics like engineering operations, financial management, and more. You can also earn your Six Sigma Black Belt certification. All you need is a bachelor's in a STEM field and the drive to take your career to the next level. Take charge of engineering projects and teams. 
Get started today at louisville.edu slash online. So you, you mentioned too about some of the environmental factors that are that can challenges to, to switching from, from a formal office where you're in a professional setting, it's quiet, to home and you have any number of variables that could be a problem, whether it be children or dogs or, or even the lighting in your home or, you know, just, just some things at home that, that you're afforded the luxury of at the office you just couldn't at home. It kind of leads me to another one of the studies you had done about air quality, right. which I been considered as, as uh, something that could be a factor in a lot of homes. Uh, I know in my own home, I live in Wisconsin here. When I had my house inspected before I bought it, radon is a big issue in this region of the country. And uh, so we had our house radon tested and we were this like three times over the recommended safe value. So we had to put in a radon mitigation system. We have uh, carbon monoxide sensors in our home and all of that. Well, I, I don't think a lot of people probably consider those things. And in, in reading the research article uh, that you and your colleagues had worked on um, regarding the, the indoor air quality, uh, that was something I hadn't hadn't considered. And uh, uh, it makes sense, though, that 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 you know uh, the vital, uh, organic compounds that could be in your air could could affect your cognitive function, and could it make a difference in your performance when you transition home if your home is not does not have poor air quality. It's a strange, uh, strange new dynamic for companies uh, when we have these conversations with them. And I think depending on the company you're working with, this can be a real moment of pause, right? Because everyone's pretty excited generally about, uh, especially on a personal level, hey, give me some, give me some flexibility. You know, let me be hybrid. Let me be remote. Let me, you know, let me have a few days where I can come or go or not have to commute in an hour or traffic jam. So yeah. folks are kind of excited about that. but. When you think about placing a worker into an environment, normally that's a responsibility of the company from an occupational health standpoint to say, okay, Aaron, I've set you down in this spot. I need to make sure you're going to be safe in this spot, right? So I'm going to take a look at all those things you just mentioned and make sure that they're within reasonable limits. I'm sure they're going to fluctuate day by day, season by season, but we're going to make sure that there's very little chance of you being injured or developing a long-term illness. And when we drop people off in their homes, we sort of almost uh, kind of wipe our hands of that, right? We're like, oh, my hands are clean. I'm I'm washing my hands of this. You know, it's not on me. It's on you. It's your house. And it is, but it's also your workplace. And so Mm -hmm. we, we have not come to grips, right? This conversation you and I are having right now has not been sort of asked and answered at the highest corporate levels across the country. A few companies, I would say, have stepped up and are realizing, oh, okay, we we used to take this really seriously when everybody was in our building that we owned and we kept the building at a certain, you know, ambient temperature and humidity and we had a certain number of air exchanges per hour bringing in fresh air. Uh, we, we changed um, not only that fresh air makeup and the air exchange rate, but we would adjust that according to numbers, readings, monitors, readings that we got that said, hey, the CO2 is getting a little high, you know, let's let's get some fresh air in here from outside, or hey, we're getting some extra VOCs. Where, where's this coming from? Oh, we bought this new carpet on the third floor, and we think that's really pushing up the levels. Well, why did we buy a carpet that has that much off-gassing? We should have corporate standards that don't 
allow us to purchase that. And it turns out a lot of companies do, by the way. Um, so, you know, we don't have any of those kind of controls for the stuff we put in our homes, right? The furnishings, the paint, the glues, the carpets, I mean, all that stuff we just throw in there sort of willy nilly. In fact, if you're you know, like me, probably most Americans, a lot of times it's like what's on sale. Uh, that's what ends up in a lot of our homes. And it isn't necessarily the greatest thing for us. And so understanding where does sort of the corporate responsibility, is it, does it end, for instance, at education? So I'm your company and I tell you, hey, you should be aware of this. You should look for this. You should check for this before you buy, before you install. Uh, you should monitor for these things in your home. In fact, do we go to the next level and say, hey, I bought you, I'm your company. I bought you a monitor and I want you to put it in your home and I want you to run it for a couple of weeks. In fact, bring me the data and I'll give you recommendations on how to improve it if improvements are necessary. So remember, there's there's limits on all these things where you kind of wobble on a day-to-day basis. And, and if you're in those limits, you probably don't really need to worry about changing anything because we think those are safe limits. But if you're regularly exceeding some of these levels, I mean, we, we came across in the home environments that we tested some CO2 levels, for instance, that uh, it would probably make most people drowsy and certainly, certainly would affect their ability to you know, be sharp and have a good executive function, make decisions, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think companies would be interested in that and would care if you've got a, a six-figure worker who's making corporate decisions and they're drowsy and, you know, reduced cognition. I, I think most companies would care about that. Now, where does where does the caring stop and the action begin? I don't think we've, again, I don't think we've reached that point yet. We're just starting to sort of discuss these topics and bring up these things. So, as a typical academic, I'm going to say, you know, more research is necessary. Um, but I do know enough now after the last two or three years of research, particularly during COVID, um, that we we really feel strongly that, yeah, we, we've got to have these conversations. We've got to look into these things. We've got to make some decisions and be purposeful. Um, there, there's a lot around this topic. And it, and it can be hard for companies because it's like, well, we're we're getting rid of some of these expensive uh, real estate costs. Yay. What do you, wait, what do you mean I need to look into this or spend this other money, you know, for these remote worker sites? And it sort of takes away some of the fun of the, you know, I saved the company a million dollars in real estate costs. So uh, it'll, this will be going on for a while. We'll be, we'll be having these conversations for a while. So. Sure. It could be a, a transitioning of, of how they allocate their funds and their money. That's right. Uh, so putting more into making their, their home workforce comfortable and perform well, as opposed to spending as much on the availability of the office space and things like that. Yes. Yes. That's very important. And I think, again, that just creates more opportunities for innovation. I mean, we know on the remote side that uh, training, absolutely critical. Got to have training. Can't you right. just... You got to have training. And and we've learned from being in corporate offices with people where we would go out and do some sort of an ergonomic visit or assessment, especially if someone was having symptoms. We we actually believe that those are better done for everyone, whether they've raised their hand or not and said, I have pain or discomfort. We we have found that it's better to just do, you know, evaluate everyone. Um, So here's a question for you, Aaron. Do we go out to their homes and conduct those same ergonomic assessments? Um, well, I did present on virtual ergonomic assessments and I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of that. Uh, I think that would be the 
traditional way to perform an ergonomic assessment, uh, but is it realistic, especially for a large company who has hundreds or thousands of people working from home? Probably not, right? So uh, I definitely think there are tools and individuals and programs that are being developed that are capable of, uh, of assessing an individual's ergonomic uh, setup by virtual means. Um, and I know you have been working on some things to to um, to address those issues as well. Are you are you willing to share uh, some of that uh, information you've been working on? Sure. I think that the uh, the innovation that's going to come from this, like I mentioned before, on equipment, you're going to see that. You know, you're going to see innovations around awareness and training, and you're going to see innovations around uh, monitoring and sampling and collecting data. I do believe you're correct there, and I think it's going to really trend towards that evaluation being done at a distance. And what I mean by that is it won't necessarily be a true human conducting the analysis. It's very possible that some of these things will be done by what you and I would consider today uh, avatars, uh, digital humans. And so I think these digital humans will conduct some of this work for us. They're able to process data and information that we just can't. Uh, one cool thing about them too is that because they're watching through the camera and they're listening through the microphone, they're picking up on tells. Uh, they never take their eyes off of us, right? I mean, you and I get distracted. You know, we get uncomfortable. We shift around. We look away. Um, any little sound comes up in the room, we look towards the sound, right? Uh, they're able to really focus and stay on task and stay with the person and hear what they're saying, hear how they're saying it. Uh, they can see them. We can set up systems in the home where we can mail something out to you and we can see you in 3D in a space. And we can use those cameras to collect the same kind of data you and I might have done 20 years ago with a goniometer, right, on your arm. And we right. measure, you know, 30 degrees, 70 degrees. Angles. Yeah. And we can do that all with cameras now at a distance. And in fact, like I say, with the algorithms and the AI that's coming in the next three to five years, uh, these digital humans ability to collect information for us from our employees is going to far, far outpace us. And then going back to our first discussion, they will not only be able to do that when we ask them, hey, go perform a evaluation on David and check him out and see how he's doing, right? And they can go and do that virtually. No person has to come to your home. Um, which is really good for many safety and security type reasons. And of course, just economics, right? It's expensive to travel around the country to all these different places. Um, those digital humans will collect that information and they'll do it in a way, probably in the next seven to 10 years, that will start to look much more like that wearable data we're collecting now, where it will be continuous. And they will pick up on tells and information from you that um, even your best friend or spouse would have a hard time picking up on and they'll say, wow, Aaron, um, are you having trouble with your back? You know, you're, you're really, you know, leaning forward or slouching or you're leaning to one side or, you know, I noticed the shift or change, uh, you know, your voice intonation has changed. Are you in pain? Are you, you know, I mean, they will pick up on things that we really uh, have a hard time, unless, like I say, someone we're really close to uh, that we would notice right away. Wow, this person's going to be having a hard day, right? They'll, they'll notice that, which I think is exciting because one of the challenges with remote work 
is not just the physical body. We, we as ergonomists tend to think a lot about neck down. And one of my colleagues here, Doc, uh, Dr. Betta at Texas A&M, she's, she's taught me just about everything I know about neck up, right? And trying to understand the neuroergonomics of what's going on with folks. And so for having devices that can monitor and, and understand how those two things, the neck up and the neck down correlate, but also from a mental health standpoint, am I experiencing anxiety? Am I experiencing depression? Is that happening to me during a Zoom with my boss? Is it happening to me with a Zoom with a colleague where I'm being bullied? Um, is it happening because I'm having trouble with substance abuse or something else, right? And so picking up on these tells in continuous real time, I believe is gonna give us the first chance to really have some proactive uh, health for people, right? We, we mostly in this country, when we think of healthcare, it's really more like sick care, right? We wait for people to get really sick and then, hey, we're one of the best countries in the world to diagnose you and treat you, but you're already you sick. Mean, yeah. The game that is how we win, especially with economically for our country, is we keep people from getting sick. And we've got to shift more of our technology and innovation and research towards things systems in particular that can keep us from getting sick in the first place. Because once we're sick, wow, yeah, we, like I said, we're the best at diagnostics. We got incredible diagnostics. We're the, we're the best in the treatment world. I mean, you get something, you're probably going to get flown to the U.S. if you've bagged because you probably got the people here to help you. Uh, but not getting it in the first place, this country is struggling. I mean, we're struggling on so many levels of mental and physical health that we're, we're not the model for that. And so some of these new things I'm talking about, I think they will help all of us on a daily basis, you know, kind of this personal assistant, personal coach, personal trainer, walking right there with you throughout your day and really learning you and really being able to make a difference. Um, you know, those are all powerful tools. But again, if you, if you go see your personal trainer on Thursday for 30 minutes, or you spend an hour with a counselor or a coach, uh, you know, for half an hour on, on Friday afternoon, that's awesome. It'll probably move the bar. It'll probably be better for you. You'll, you'll gain from that. But if that person could be with you, dedicated to you all the time, and they were really good at their job, by the way, they were awesome at their job, uh, that would have a bigger effect on you personally. So, I think, too, what uh, going back to what you had said about uh, data collection and data points is, you know, even an in-person ergonomic assessment, things like that, that's a snapshot. That's right. You can't be with them day in, day out and watch their postural changes over long periods of time. Whereas if you have cameras that are collecting continuous data points, you're looking at behavioral uh, and postural and all these changes uh, with, with a lot of data points to get a better idea of the continuum of an individual's behavior rather than right. snapshot and then making a determination on a brief period of time of that individual, which may not be representative of, of the whole. That's a really good point. If you want to see the best ergonomic posture that the person's ever going to have, tell them you're coming to do an ergonomic evaluation. Yeah. <laughs> it right. will be perfect as best as, yeah. as they can do during that time, right? Yeah. Sometimes I got to sneak away, up on people. Right. Sometimes I try to catch people when they're not looking. That's the best you're going to get. That's as good as you're going to get. They know when you're looking, they're not going to be doing the same things. That's right. I would say the only hesitancy I could see is, is, um, you know, some people 
may feel suspicious of the camera watching them or things like that. But I think if they have some amount of assurance of the purpose and the usage and things like that, then, you know, that, that would be an acceptable uh, modality to, to, to use and how it can help them. Have you had any concerns or thoughts about those types of things? We have, and it brings up two really good points. And I'll, I'll say the first one is privacy. The second one is what you're talking about sort of just with this uh, effect over time. And, We've done thousands, tens of thousands of hours of just traditional videotape of people working in industrial settings and in office settings. And there is absolutely an initial, uh, you know, posturing, uh, positioning for the camera. And man, it doesn't take long. Usually the longest holdouts will go about an hour. And by the time the hour is gone, everybody's back to slouching and scratching and doing whatever people do. Right. I mean, we all do all our things and most of those things we don't necessarily want to be on camera, but once we are left alone for a while, we will revert. We'll go back to just good old normal things we do on a daily basis, our typical behaviors. And that's when the data actually gets to be uh, helpful and interesting. Cause then it's really tracking the, the real world, right? What's really happening. And that's always the scary thing about these little small samples or the, the study in a laboratory for 30 minutes, right? With two healthy grad students. And it's like, that's uh, probably not what the rest of us are going to look like at the end of a long work day. Uh, probably not representative. And so it's great when you can get out in the field, collect field data of real workers in real time over long periods of time and really see them, see the full complete picture. The other part you mentioned was privacy. And this is a big bugaboo. Uh, we, we have a harder time with this, uh, with two groups in companies. The first group is the obvious one, the employee. What, what are you doing watching me, tracking me? What, what, what's going on there? Okay, so I'll, I'll address that one in a second. The other one is sort of the other end of the spectrum, which is, let's just say corporate legal or corporate, uh, corporate IT or just anybody who's on that side of things. Um, very real concerns. Uh, 10 years ago, the first time we sort of started doing some wearable tracking. So we had a wearable device, you know, and, and that device did capture information about the person and we could then download it and look at it, maybe a couple of weeks of information or something. There was a lot of concern, right? What are you learning about me? What do you know about me? The company was concerned. What is that? Is that, can they hear the conversations about our secret new product or is it, does it know or can it hear the keys and the passwords that you're typing? I mean, there was a lot of concerns. Uh, we seem to have sort of gotten by that one pretty good. The next phase that we've entered now is where everything is cloud-based. Everything is on the computers, the systems. It's on the inter and the intranet. Um, lots of security concerns and issues for the companies, for IT, for legal, uh, for releases, and, and just security in general. And then, of course, the employee. And so where we're at with the employees right now is we've sort of crossed the threshold when we tell the typical employee today compared to 10 years ago, hey, uh, we're going to track and monitor some stuff on your computer and, you know, kind of trend and look and see if we can help you know, with your health. The typical reaction for most employees is like, ah, OK, you know, like uh, I think that the idea anymore of real privacy for most of us 
And we realize like it's gone. I mean, I'm sure Siri and Alexa and all her friends are listening to you and I right now. Um, you know, there's, there's just not that many uh, things left where we're not being videotaped, right? Something, if you work at a big company and you're on the computer today and you think you're not being tracked or followed, we probably should talk because <laughs> like that ship has sailed, right? Every keystroke we make on and every computer system at every company, um, it's being tracked. It's, it's right. being trended and saved and looked at and scrutinized and triple double checked, you know, before it comes or goes from the firewall. I mean, it is, wow. So I think most employees are starting to kind of reach that point. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. Is this, is this going to help me? Is this good for me? You know, and I don't want to get in trouble with my boss. I don't want this to be punitive, right? Uh, I don't want to hear back tomorrow that I didn't spend enough time doing something or doing it fast enough or whatever like that. And that's where people like you and I come in, Aaron, because we, we have to sort of be the ambassadors of this data and say, yes, use improperly. There is a chance that uh, companies could turn this sort of on the employees and it could be kind of punitive and negative, but in the right hands, use the right way. This has the chance to sort of revolutionize some of that health uh, proactive thing that, that we're talking about, right? Really, truly help people. And uh, I get excited about that part of it because it's, it's been a long time since we've really had those kinds of, of radical possible transformations in our health and our, in our healthy behaviors. And we need help with that. Um, you mentioned standing desks a while back and yeah, they're great. And you know, you give them to people, but getting them to use them is a whole other science, right? right. That's a completely different thing. And I have that so, conversation with people. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I go, it looks great. It's cool. But I go into this, uh, this, this office building and there's cubicles that I know have standing desks, but I don't see anybody standing. So yes. I, you think you will use it. You have to use it. You have to regiment your use. Otherwise, you know, our, our company is paying for this expensive piece of equipment. They're not going to be happy if you're not using it. And right. realistic about, should, is this something you should have or not? The, the best change that we've seen in the field, in a, in a real field study over six months, was about a doubling of the use of the desks. Uh, in the standing position, of course, because most people sit at them for most of the day. Right. Um, in fact, when I say doubling, that that almost sounds kind of exciting, but it was it was kind of like from nine percent to eighteen percent of time, right. and that was let me tell you, going from nine percent to eighteen percent, nine percent was pretty good. Uh, yeah. Going from nine percent to eighteen percent was whoa, right? Exactly. And that was through that was through computer prompts. So the computer would give you a what I call a soft nudge, which hopefully is a little less annoying than a beeper or a bell going off or something like that, but it would give you a soft nudge, uh, a suggestion, right? If you will. Yeah. And, um, you know, people responded to those. They responded to them very well, better than most behavioral interventions and things I've been involved in. Uh, because normally, you know, when you do behavioral interventions, if you get some of the people, some of the time to do some of what you want, you feel like a hero. Right. But if you get the majority of the people, the majority of the time to respond to whatever uh, encouragement, training, nudge you know, that you're providing, that's a I can say that's whoa, OK, that's a big deal. That's that's that's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. We think this technology assistance where the technology is helping us is probably where we're headed. It, it, technology kind of got us here, too. Right. It's sort of like 
technology is the one who got us sitting still, sitting down, not moving all day because all this great stuff's right at our fingertips on the computer. So I think it'll end up being technology that rescues us from this, you know, technology-induced inactivity that it's caused us. Uh, so that, that's that's encouraging, but it's going to take years, just like it took us years to get there. We didn't get there overnight. Um, it'll take us a few years to get the technology dialed up and have enough innovations where folks can benefit from instead of just struggle with the technology. So. Absolutely. Well, Mark, this has been a terrific discussion and we greatly appreciate your time. Uh, thank you again for talking with us. Just a quick reminder to our listeners, the Applied Ergonomics Conference uh, 2022 is taking place March 21st through the 24th in Orlando, Florida. Uh, you can start your spring right by joining us at the most engaging ergonomics event of the year. Sign up by March 13th and save up to $200 on registration. Learn more and register today at www.iise.org backslash AEC backslash register. And thank you to the audience for uh, listening today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org.